of this sermon is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. So would you turn with me to the book of Philippians in chapter 3? We're only going to cover verses 1 through 3 this morning. Trinity Community Church. This is God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Trinity, this is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning because you are here with us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are a good Father, that you are faithful, strong, and true, righteous, and holy. We praise you for sending your Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin, that we have been alive in spirit by the Holy Spirit. Father, we confess to you now that we are in need of your divine illumination. We are people prone to wander. We are people prone to distraction. We are people who are prone to sickness. And we just want to affirm and confirm our need of you. So we ask and we thank you that you delight to encourage your church. You delight to build up your church. So we pray now and we ask that you would sanctify your church, that you would continue to make us more like Christ. And we ask that you would do that through your word in Philippians chapter three. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Remind us where we need to be reminded Help us to refocus our gaze back to you when we have been distracted with the circumstances of life. We thank you in advance for you are faithful. Be glorified in all that we say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Again, the title of this sermon is Rejoice in the Lord. Circumstances and people can rob us of joy can't they? But so can things. Today, we can be ensnared by intangible and tangible things. And as a result, we can lose our joy. We can be enamored with people. And when they disappoint us, or when they sin against us, our joy is lost. Many today are caught up in the pursuit of fame or riches or accomplishments, and as a result, do not experience real and true 
Christian joy. That's because real Christian joy, is, it's not rooted in people. Christian joy is not rooted in things. Christian joy is not rooted in accomplishments and riches and fame. True joy, Christian joy, is rooted in a person. It is rooted in the Lord. The good news is, The joy in the Lord can never be lost. Do you hear me, church? Our joy in the Lord can never be lost, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves into. In our text this morning, Paul gives us a command to rejoice in the Lord, not in man, not in things, not in ourselves or in our accomplishments, We are commanded this morning to rejoice in the Lord. Here's what I believe is the main burden of verses 1 through 3. In light of what Jesus has done, church, we are to rejoice in him and put no confidence in the work of the flesh. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul describes two groups for us this morning. Genuine believers and false teachers. He describes the characteristics of the two groups, but this morning I want to emphasize the characteristics of the genuine believers. First, genuine believers rejoice in the Lord. Look with me at the A part of verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. The word finally does not mean that Paul is about to close this epistle. No, it doesn't mean that because he's really in the middle of the epistle. That word finally is better rendered furthermore or so then or now then or for the rest. The term finally actually introduces this new section in his epistle. Paul's finally in chapter 4, verse 8, is the one that means I'm about to close. And so when I say in conclusion, later on in a sermon, that means I'm about to close so that we can beat the Baptists and the Presbyterians, the Sunnies, or Leoncitos, right? Although the command to Rejoice is one of the means for us to rejoice in the Lord. We are going to see some really great things that Paul will remind us of. In the book of Philippians, we see the command to rejoice. In chapter 2, verse 18, we see the word rejoice appear twice in chapter 1, verse 18. But this is the first time in the book of Philippians that the Apostle Paul added in the Lord. So in prior verses, he commands us to rejoice and to have joy. But in our text this morning, this is the first time that he adds the phrase to rejoice in the Lord. 
this opening command sets a tone for the entire chapter. Rejoice in the Lord. The Philippians should not rejoice in what they have done, but in Christ Jesus and what he has done. Perhaps Paul was trying to keep them from rejoicing in themselves when when what they have done to partner with him in the gospel. We see that in chapter 1, verse 5. They were faithful to partner with him in the gospel, and Paul wanted to keep them from rejoicing in that. The Apostle Paul rightly commands them to rejoice in the Lord in what he has done in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, which is often called the Christ hymn. What we find in this command is that Paul connects our rejoicing to a relationship. The believer's relationship with the Lord. To rejoice is not, to, is not the same as to be happy. Happiness is the feeling of exhilaration associated with favorable events or favorable out- outcomes. You get happy, right, guys, when you said, will you marry me? And she said yes. You get happy when you find out that you are pregnant. You get happy when the test reveals that it's negative. You are happy when you earn an A on the test. But to rejoice persists in the fact of opposition or in the face of opposition. It persists in the face of dissension, pain, suffering, and even death. James 1 verse 2 says, count it all joy my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. Church, this is biblical joy. Biblical joy produces confidence in the future that is based on trust in God, his purpose, and his power. You see, no matter how bleak and uncertain the future may be, biblical joy can exist with the absence of fear because it is rooted in a relationship with Christ that is eternal and unshakable. Notice that to rejoice in the Lord is a biblical command. That the apostle commands it shows that rejoicing in the Lord is an act of the will choosing to obey God in obedience. And when we obey God in, in his command to rejoice in the Lord, the result is a supernaturally produced emotion. Growing up in the Philippines, we didn't have a dentist office on every street corner like we do here, it seems like, in the U.S. And because as a child, I didn't have a, um, a whole lot of self-discipline in my oral care. Well, as an adult now, I don't have the best teeth. Well, recently, I think it was about a year and a half ago, I decided that I would have some dental work done on a couple of my crowns. I have a couple of crowns in my mouth that are probably older than most of you sitting in this auditorium. 
I don't have dental insurance, so if you are a self-paid um, patient, you know that you're going to pay most of it, if not all of it. Well, right after I got it done, about to the tune of $2,200, I was a proud owner of two updated crowns and a mouth guard. And get this, on my way back to my last dental appointment, part of my tooth, a piece of my tooth broke. Now, I don't have that bad of teeth. It's just I believe it was damaged while the dentist was working on my crown. And so what that meant was I had to make another appointment. I had to sit in the dental chair, and then I had to go through all of the things that we dislike about going to the dentist. Angel, no offense. <laughs> we, we, we love dentists. We love that they can care for the health of our teeth. But it's just not pleasant when you go to a dentist and you have to open your mouth and they stick sharp things in that causes all kinds of discomfort and pain and all that. And so I was so discouraged when I had to text Melinda to tell her about it. Do you know how she responded? I, th I think our wives are just God's gift to us. He, she responded by thanking God that he had provided the finances um, in advance so that we can fix my teeth and not have to pull them out. She literally obeyed the command to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of uncircumstances. I think this is what it means to rejoice in the Lord always, as Paul exhorts us, exhorts us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We don't all only rejoice in the Lord when things are on the upswing, when things are going our way. We rejoice in him always in all circumstances. Let me ask you this, Trinity. When do you rejoice? What do you rejoice in? Who do you rejoice in? Do you rejoice in your spouse when he or she finally does what he or she is supposed to do? Do you rejoice in your children when they finally Behave? Do you rejoice in your finances when you finally have a windfall? Do you rejoice in your family when everyone is healthy once again? Ultimately, we ought to rejoice in the Lord who is doing a mighty work in the hearts of our children to help them behave and obey. Ultimately, we ought to rejoice in the Lord who has moved supernaturally, right, in the hearts of our spouse so that they can do what they have called them, what God has called them to do, to be that, that husband or that wife. We ought to rejoice in the Lord when he makes everyone healthy once again in our family. Our focus is our rejoicing in the Lord, not in the circumstances. Church, regardless of our abundance or need or health and sickness and even death, regardless of the mountaintops and valleys, regardless of prosperity and adversity, we ought to always rejoice in the Lord because through the cross, Jesus shed his blood to make a way for us to have an eternal and unshakable relationship with God the Father. 
to the unbelievers who are here and to the unbelievers who are live streaming. What you find yourself rejoicing in are earthly things. One day, they will not last. One day, these things that you're rejoicing in will perish and fade. In fact, as an unbeliever, you're not able to, to rejoice in the Lord because you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But it doesn't have to stay that way, does it? God, through Jesus Christ, provided a way for you to have a personal relationship with him. God the Father, God sent his beloved son, Jesus, to die on the cross to earn the forgiveness that you desperately need because of your sin. Your sin, unbeliever, separates you from a holy God. And the wages of your sin is death, but praise be to God that he sent Jesus Christ to die for the forgiveness of our sins so that we may have eternal life. This forgiveness is a free gift if you're not a believer. Only don't reject this gift. Accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. And when you do, there will be great rejoicing both here on earth and in heaven. Receive it today. Let today be your day of salvation. You, then you can rejoice in the Lord no matter what circumstances you find yourself in in the future. First, the genuine believer rejoices in the Lord no matter the circumstances. Next, the genuine believer stays on guard. Look with me at the B part of verse 1 and verse 2. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul shifted from giving an imperative or a command to rejoice in the Lord to giving the Philippians three warnings. Paul is also giving us three warnings today. For Paul, to write the same things was no trouble at all for him because it was for the good of the Philippians. For Paul, to tell them the same things again was not grieving to him because it was necessary for the Philippian church. Because it was for their safety. And so we might ask, what did Paul tell them before that he's going to tell them again? Probably, Paul had in mind what he has already said in chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. This is what follows the flow of our text this morning. He says in chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation and that from God. The word safe there can also be translated safeguard, which is how the NASB translation put it. To be reminded of the same thing was a safeguard for the Philippians. It was for their safety. It was for their security. It was for their well-being for us today. To be reminded of the same thing, it's, it's good for us, church, because we quickly forget It is for our safety. It is for our strengthening. It is for our security. It is for our well-being. The great boxer Muhammad Ali once boarded a plane. And when the stewardess began her mundane instructions on how to fasten the seatbelt and to remain seated, the great champ Muhammad Ali stood up and protested. He said, I'm Superman. I don't need a seatbelt. To which the stewardess replied, well, Superman didn't need an airplane, so please sit down and buckle up. (laughs) No matter how cumbersome seatbelts are, we need them, right? I was reminded this morning, I was riding in the back to put on my seatbelt. Why? It was for my safety and my well-being. The word safeguard means to make firm, that which can be relied on, to make true, to to make certain. The Apostle Paul faithfully warned them of their opponents so that they can remain firm, so that we can remain firm, so that they can remain true to their faith, so that they can be certain of the gospel truths so that we can be certain of the gospel truths. Paul was very concerned for the Philippian church that he warned them to look out how many times? Three times. He says, look out three times. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For the Philippians, Paul told them how to recognize their opponents. Their opponents were the Judaizers who were the false teachers of the day. First, Paul warned them to look out for the dogs. Paul described the Judaizers, the false teachers of his day, as dogs. The Bible uses the term dog in two different ways. There are dogs that are pets. It's the the Greek word kunarion in Matthew 15. The term dog was used as a family pet because it was used in the context of a Gentile family. Now, there are dogs that are wild scavengers that plague ancient cities. These dogs were wild, and they roam in packs, feeding on garbage. That garbage there refers to flesh that was torn in the fields. They occasionally attacked humans. They were despised by the communities. The, the term was typically used in a derogatory term. In fact, in biblical times, the Jews used this term for describing Gentiles. Gentiles were dogs because they were ritually unclean. It was a term used for Gentiles to mock them. 
But in contrast, note the contrast here. Paul, being a Jew himself, used this term to describe the Judaizers, the Jewish false teachers. Why? Because some dogs are vicious and ravenous and they need to be avoided. They need to be looked out for. Some dogs are unclean and filthy. And in a similar way, so were the false teachers. Now, look to your left, look to your right, look in front of you, look behind you. These are not your opponents. For us today, the dogs in our culture, the dogs in our society are the ones who teach that salvation can be earned by good works. Church, we must guard against doctrine and against false doctrine, and we must preserve the truth of God's word at all costs. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9, it teaches us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those who teach contrary to this doctrine of salvation are ravenous, savage dogs, and are to be avoided. Pastors and elders in all denominations must warn their congregation against them. Second, Paul warned them to look out for the evildoers. Though the false teachers thought that they were doing good works by obeying the law, in reality, they were actually evildoers. Now stay with me. Do you know of any religious people? They're those who are involved in external ritualistic and ceremonial religions. Oftentimes, these are people who pride themselves as doing righteous acts that glorify God. The trouble with the evildoers, the the religious people who do good works, is that they believe that their good works and righteous deeds can earn them favor with God, that they can be justified with their good works before God, that they can be saved by their good works. The trouble with their teaching is that it actually kept people from the free grace of God. The trouble with their teaching their teaching was that good works kept the people from receiving the free grace of forgiveness that was earned by Jesus at the cross. This is why Paul called them evildoers. It's an evil thing to keep people from hearing the good news of the gospel. Good works are never enough to earn the forgiveness of our sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross on our behalf is acceptable to God for the forgiveness of our sin, church. Trinity, this is why we rejoice in the Lord. Third, Paul warned them to look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These Judaizers deny the gospel of grace, teaching that circumcision and keeping of the law of Moses were necessary for salvation. You see, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, some men, Judaizers, came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And by God's grace, the Jerusalem council condemned this heretical teaching. This is why Paul had to write the book of Galatians. Do you guys remember that when we went through the book of Galatians? This is why he wrote the book of Galatians. In short, we can say that the book of Galatians is the declaration of our justification. We are declared righteous, not because of good works of the law, but because of the righteousness of Christ that was imputed, that was given to us at the cross. But what about the book of James? Do you remember the book of James? James says that faith without good works is dead. In short, we can say that the book of James is about us doing good works of righteousness in Christ given to us at the cross. Let me say that again. We, we can say that the book of James is about us doing good works which is the demonstration of our justification. We are saved by grace and faith alone, but after salvation, that faith is not alone. It is accompanied by good works. Do you see the difference there? Listen, good works are not the means of our salvation, but it is the fruit of our salvation. It is the natural, inevitable result of salvation. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. In the old covenant, circumcision has always been an essential part to the, the Jewish people since it is the distinguishing mark of God's covenant with Abraham. We see that in Genesis 17, 11 and Acts 7, 8. But... Unfortunately, by Paul's day, circumcision had become a requirement for salvation. But true circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. Listen to this, church. Romans 8, or Romans 2, verses 28 through 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. No rituals, no circumcisions, no communion, no other works can transform a heart. Genuine believers rejoice in the Lord. Genuine believers stay on guard. And finally... Genuine believers put no confidence in the flesh. Look with me at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, if you're still with me, church, Paul makes an astounding statement in verse 3. The Judaizers were the false circumcision and genuine believers are the true circumcision. 
Genuine believers have experienced true conversion and regeneration. They have experienced true inward transformation, a true spiritual cleansing of the heart, and not the meaningless outward mark of circumcision. You see the difference there? Paul describes genuine believers as having three qualities. Look with me at verse three again in each of the qualities. First, genuine believers are the ones who worship God by the spirit of God. After true conversion and regeneration, the natural outflow is the gift of salvation. And out of that is true worship of God. Now that the spirit of God indwells in the genuine believer, it is the spirit of God that generates this worship of God. Worship of God involves extolling God, singing songs to God, praising God, praying, serving God, and giving to God. Listen, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 1, Isaiah makes it clear that false worship or empty worship or hypocritical worship is unacceptable to God. God hates it. God is repulsed by false worship. But genuine believers worship God by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is what makes genuine worship of God possible. True worship is more than just praising God in song, giving of our finances. It also involves a life of serving God. You see, church, this word worship in verse 3 can be rendered to serve, to minister, or to render religious service. Actually, the NIV translation puts it this way, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit. I have a picture on my bathroom wall that says, the joy of the Lord is my strength, which is referencing Nehemiah 8, verse 10. Trinity, what is the source of your strength when you serve God? How do you make it through day in and day out with all of the God-given responsibilities that you have? Do you serve with the strength that the Lord provides through the Holy Spirit? First Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11 says this, As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God provides. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Listen church, do you want your serving here at Trinity to have longevity? Do you want your serving at home as a mom or a dad, as a son or a daughter to have longevity? Do you want your serving at work to be sustained? Church, this serving that can be sustained over a long time can only be made possible by divine enablement. 
It is only made possible by the strength that the Lord provides. Do it by the strength that God provides. And when you do, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. Second, genuine believers glory in Christ Jesus. So what does it look like for us to glory in Christ Jesus? Here are some examples. To glory in Christ Jesus is to delight in him. It is to rejoice in him, and it is also to boast in him. Genuine believers ascribe all glory and credit to Christ for for all that they are and for all that they have. Genuine believers boast in what Jesus has done through them and not what they have accomplished. In our English language, boasting is usually used in the negative sense, right? But in Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, it is used in a positive way. This is a very familiar verse. It says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I decline, or I delight, declares the Lord. As in the English language, boasting is vocal. Galatians 6.14 says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Third, genuine believers put no confidence in the flesh, but in Christ Jesus. We not only rejoice in the Lord, but we put our confidence in the Lord. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we must never put confidence in the flesh. The word flesh denotes mere human nature. It denotes the earthly nature of man apart from divine influence, therefore prone to sin and prone to oppose God. I think we can all agree and relate to Paul when he said this in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells within me. That is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Because no one can ever earn the salvation, uh, the free gift of salvation through the works of the flesh. We must not put our confidence in the flesh. Even good works cannot make sinners saints, and good works cannot get sinners into heaven. This is why the Apostle Paul, later on in this chapter, he called his religious accomplishments and even his heritage rubbish, dung, and worthless. In conclusion, finally, I do believe in a works-based salvation. But as my friend Jeff Shank said this morning, it's only in the good works of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that makes sinners 
holy. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that reconciles sinful man to holy God. This is why we rejoice in the Lord always. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Church, would you please stand with me? Let's respond in song and worship our Lord for what he has done. Father, we praise you this morning for your faithful reminder of you were that we are not to find our joy in, in our circumstances or in a person or our personal accomplishments or our belongings. We are to find our joy in Christ Jesus who never changes. Therefore, our joy in him can never be taken away, can never be lost. So Father, be glorified as we rejoice in our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we sing. Jesus, be magnified as we sing to you. Holy Spirit, glorify God the Father and glorify the Son. In Jesus' name, amen.